Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to Parkview. My name is Ray Kolbacher. I'm the senior pastor here. And, you know, all around the world today, um, people very much like us will gather together and uh, sing familiar songs, light Advent candles, and sort of bask in the sentimental haze of a holiday nostalgia, experiencing uh, the emotional side of a worship event uh, like this, uh, which for me is a wonderful thing. And um, it's all well and fine, as long as, with the emotionalism of Christmas, we make sure to engage the rational side of it as well. Because when it comes to Jesus, you know, there's an awful lot to think about. History records his humble birth and relatively short, simple life, yet also chronicles how over the past 2,000 years, Jesus has changed individuals, couples, families, communities, nations, and cultures. He's inspired people of all races and all walks of life to give up their finances, their possessions, their safety, their careers, their lives, all for his cause. The instrument of execution upon which he met his death, the cross, has become the most recognized symbol in the world. Even down through history, when people wanted to uh, have wanted to do bad things, they've used his name to hide behind as a shield, a pretext uh, for their actions. There's no denying that. But the fact is, more good has, uh, has come in, in his name than bad. Because of Jesus, hospitals and orphanages have been established around the globe. More books have been written, more education encouraged, more food and water distributed, more slaves set free, justice carried out, more expressions of great art have been created, all because of him. He has stirred the thinking of brilliant minds and inspired the founding of great universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale. Speaking of Yale, their famed scholar and historian, Dr. Jaroslav Pelikan, once wrote, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for 20 centuries. It boggles the mind that the movement he began isn't just remembered, not just studied, not just continued. It's growing. It's spreading on every continent, generally faster than ever before. What are the odds? It's from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It's by his name millions curse, and in his name billions pray. With all that being true, here's my gift to you this afternoon. Uh, I want to give you a moment to think. You say, well, I'd rather have a pair of socks and maybe a coupon for Chick-fil-A Chick or something, right? I get that. I get that. But hey, since we're here, why not, right? Why not consider what made Jesus so unique? What was it about his life and teaching that has had such an undeniable and lasting impact on humanity? And while this may seem a bit presumptuous, let me try, let me try and summarize it uh, in one word. Grace. Grace. Just so you know, I'm not the first to summarize it this way. When writing the early church uh, about Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, the grace of God, that's how he describes Jesus, the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. Grace. Now, here's the thing. We live in a culture today where um, well over 90% of people believe in God. Why so many? Well, I think it's because human beings are by, by nature incorrigibly religious. In fact, philosophers and sociologists 
used to predict that by the late 20th century, religious belief would be in decline and, and become a non-factor in the world. But experts now admit that just that they were wrong. That's not true. Religion is as much a factor in human history as it's ever been. Even, even in our increasingly secularized American culture, there remains this, this widespread undercurrent of belief. See, most men and women don't buy into naturalism, uh, into atheism, which says, you know, our world and we who inhabit it are nothing more than highly evolved, random biological accidents. Beauty? Beauty is just an illusion. Love? A mere chemical reaction, just the firing of synapses in gray matter. Uh, devoid of any meaning. There is no transcendence, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Just blind, pitiless indifference. Yet again, most people reject those notions. Most people believe that there, there is more to our existence than, that, than what we just see and, and hear and feel and touch and smell. You know, there's more to it. There's a greater purpose to our lives. That good and evil are real things. That love and beauty do matter. And the sheer complexity of our, of our universe points to a creator. God exists. But it's interesting to me, you know, what, I, what I've observed over 27 years of ministry is that a majority of men, women, and students who believe in God and who either walk away from Christianity or reject it outright do so thinking they know what it, what it is and what it means, but really don't. There are instances where even some who remain in the church get mixed up and they forget what it is and what it means and need to be reminded so that together we can celebrate with true joy the birth of Jesus and share that joy with others. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Here are, uh, here are some of the typical views. The first is the, the intellectual view through which people see Christianity primarily as a set of theological tenets, arguments, doctrinal beliefs that you, you ascribe to. It's mostly a cognitive deal. You know, maybe you'd go to a class, complete a curriculum, take a test, sign a statement of faith, and you're good to go. And I often talk to people who say things like, I've been a Christian all my life. And generally what, what that person means is that they were raised uh, with a certain set of beliefs and values that they have never given up on or turned away from. The second, the second view of Christianity is the behavioral view, which says that doctrine, you know, doctrine is okay. It has its place, but, but being a Christian is, 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 is primarily about what you do. It's about being a good moral person, helping others, going to church, no lying, no cheating, no stealing, no murdering, and all the rest. And then the third view is the mystical view through which Christianity is seen as a kind of, kind of um, spiritual experience that's just hard to describe, you know, an encounter with God that changes you in deep, meaningful, undeniable ways. Now think about those for a second and tell me, is Christianity intellectual? Sure it is. Does it, does it impact behavior? Absolutely. Uh, is it in some ways a mystical experience you have with God? Yes. In fact, I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul would look at this list and agree with all of these as far as they go. But see, none go far enough. None fully describe the good news of Jesus and what it means to, to be a follower of his because at its core, Christianity is not about human intellect. It's not about behavior. It's not about experience. To press that point in his writing, the Apostle Paul returns to the basics, summarizing it all this way, how at its core, the good news of Jesus, the salvation of our souls, this being a Christian is about the grace of God appearing. 
And his use of the term grace reveals an awful lot. It tells us that Christianity is not about you and me struggling to find uh, and make our way to God. But it's, it's about God coming to find us. How out of love he has, he has taken the initiative and intentionally moved in our direction. Grace appeared. Or as the Apostle Peter put it, grace has come to you. Now, if you've been around Parfview uh, any length of time, you know that periodically uh, I like to describe some of the similarities and differences between, uh, between religions. And uh, I don't do that to criticize. I do it simply for the sake of comparison because some, sometimes people will go around saying, well, all religions are the same. And what that statement tells me when a person makes it is either they, don't, they really don't know much about world religions or it's not, they don't know as much as they think they do because that statement just isn't true. There are, they are not all the same. There are, there are massive differences. And again, that's not a criticism. It's just reality. Uh, take, for example, the whole idea of eternal rescue, of salvation. In Hinduism, salvation is about breaking out of the cycle of reincarnation and being kind of released uh, and absorbed into a universal consciousness. How does that happen? It happens through devotion to one's caste, through the knowledge of and adherence to Hindu writings and you know, the idea of being a better person, along with keeping one of a million gods happy through ritual and, and regular sacrifice. In other words, it's about human effort. It's about what you do. In Buddhism, which is really more of a philosophy, the goal is to attain total enlightenment or nirvana, a word that literally means to blow out, as, as in a candle. And the idea uh, is that we have this need to extinguish, to eliminate Human desires that Buddhism says are the cause of all of our suffering. Well, how do, you, how do you do that? You do it by following the eightfold pathway, the way of right understanding, right aim, right speech, right action, right livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. Again, it's about human achievement. It's about what you do. In Islam, Islam is about total submission. That's what the word means. Total submission to Allah, the Arabic word for God. And that submission is dictated and measured by, by what you eat, what you wear, uh, when and how often you pray, how much you give to the poor, whether or not you get to Mecca during your lifetime. And all of those things are very, very important because on Judgment Day, if a Muslim's good works outweigh his bad ones, uh, then all of his sins may be forgiven, maybe. And he may be allowed into paradise. It's not a sure thing, but it, it, maybe it'll happen. So again, it's about what you do and how well you do it. Now I realize that's a pretty brief and rather simple synopsis of three major religions, and there's, there's more to talk about, but here's my point. Every religion essentially says the same thing. That salvation, however that's defined, starts with, with you. It centers on human performance, your goodness, your effort, your achievement. But that is not what Christianity says. Christianity says it is not about the good you do to get to heaven. It's about what God has been willing to do for you. See? And that's why it's called the good news of Jesus, the gospel. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And news, by definition, is a report on what's been done and demands we recognize something has happened and prompts us to, keep, or prompts us to respond to that reality in one, in one way or another. And uh, it's this good news that makes Christianity so, so radically different from other religions. And we, of all people in this room, need to recognize and understand that. I came across this book a while back entitled 
Religion for Atheists, A Non-Believer's Guide to the Use of Religion, Uses of Religion, by a guy named Elaine uh, de Botton. De Botton is an, uh, he's an avowed atheist, um, but unlike other atheists, he doesn't have this angry deal to him. He doesn't slam faith or ridicule religion. He realizes ridicule is not an argument. And he writes this in his book. He says, attempting to prove the non-existence of God can be an entertaining activity. But the real issue isn't whether God exists or not, but where to take that argument once one decides. The premise of this book, he says, is that it's possible to remain a committed atheist and nevertheless find religions sporadically useful, interesting, and consoling. And the bottom goes on in the book to affirm the, the, you know, the personal and the cultural benefits of religious belief, uh, especially in fostering community. Uh, which I respect and, and, I, and I appreciate that from him, although his underlying thesis in the book remains that religions are all essentially the same, they're essentially wrong. But they're not all wrong, and they're certainly not all the same. Take, for example, the topic of sin. You know, basically, I think it's fair to say that, that, um, that uh, uh, other religions, all of the re religions are, are moderately... Uh, pessimistic and moderately optimistic. What do I mean by that? Well, most concede that uh, man, humanity has a problem. We have a problem with ourselves, we have a problem with others, we have a problem with God, but all agree that contained within each of us is this potential to overcome the problem if we just work hard enough and if we just perform well enough. And if so, we might, we might just make it to heaven or, or nirvana or paradise or enlightenment, wherever. Yet within all of these systems... Optimism has its limitations because you can never be sure when enough is enough, you know? Exactly how good do you have to be? You know, where, where's the cutoff? You don't know. So you just try hard and hope for the best. And religion has a tendency to crush us with guilt and uh, limit us with insecurity. But with Christianity, there is no moderation, you see. Christianity is thoroughly pessimistic and thoroughly optimistic all at the same time. Because the message of Jesus involves bad and good news. The bad news? We're so broken and rebellious by nature that we can never be good enough to uh, reach the perfect standard of a holy God. The good news is we don't have to. Uh, the grace of God has appeared. Grace has come to you i.e., Jesus came and accomplished what we as human beings cannot. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die. And it's his performance, it's his good work that solves our problems and purifies our sin and our failures. Which is why, unlike all other religions, with Christianity, optimism turns into confidence and eternal security, which then brings about a genuine sense of joy, joy in all circumstances which is something that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter talk a lot about in their New Testament letters. See, what it comes down to is this. Our eternal relationship with God, you know, the salvation of our souls, rests either, either on human effort or on God's initiative. So which is it? You know, works or grace? You have to decide. In fact, when I think about, I don't know about you, when I think about all of the theological issues that Paul and Peter wrote about in the New Testament, for them to take the, the profound truth of divine rescue, you know, salvation and all that it represents, and boil it down to one word, grace, is, is, it's incredible to me. And it, it, it begs the question, well, what exactly is grace? The common answer is, well, grace means unmerited favor. 
which is essentially true. However, I think we, we tend to fail to grasp the full nuance of the biblical term. Because in Scripture, grace doesn't simply mean granting favor to someone to whom you owe nothing. It's more than that. Grace means granting favor to someone to whom you owe the opposite. Uh, what do I mean? Well, think of it this way. Uh, imagine you take the train into, into Chicago to go shopping, Christmas shopping. You get off the train, you get on the street, you're heading toward the store. And uh, a person on the street, a homeless person, uh, is there and they need help. And they're asking for help, and so you give them a couple dollars. I mean, you're not obligated to do that. You don't owe them anything. You freely help them. Is that grace? Not exactly. You see, grace goes further than that. Here's what, here's what the fullness of grace looks like. It's when you, you go into the city and you're walking down the street and you approach the person who is mean to you, yelling at you, berating you, lying to you, trying to kick you, trying to punch you. They deserve your retribution. They deserve your hostility and your litigation, but they're in need, so you give them the opposite of what they deserve. You give them not only enough money to meet their needs, but you give them more than enough. That's grace. See? See the difference? Grace doesn't just give you what you don't deserve. It gives you the opposite of what you deserve. Instead of hate, love. Instead of retribution, mercy. Instead of judgment, uh, forgiveness. Instead of death, life. And understand, I mean, it's, it's one thing to accept grace from someone who owes you nothing. But when you receive it from someone who owes you the opposite, man, it shatters you to the core. It's so otherworldly, it's so counterintuitive that if and when you experience it, it is shocking to the soul. I mean, that's what, that's what the famous hymn writer John Newton was getting at when he said, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. The reality of God's grace is shocking, and it is personal. It's personal. Certainly the Apostle Paul knew that. I mean, he... He started out as a persecutor of, of the church, a persecutor of Christians, and he was brutal. And one day, on the, on the road to Damascus, where he planned to continue his ruthless brutality, in Jesus, grace appeared to him. It humbled him. It shattered him to the core. And he embraced it. And uh, it changed his life forever. Peter, Peter was the guy who, uh, who regularly told Jesus uh, how much he believed in him and how much he loved him, and yet when Jesus was arrested, took off. When Jesus suffered, Peter denied him three times. When Jesus died, Peter left, and yet following the resurrection, what happened? Jesus goes directly to Peter and offered him the very opposite of what he deserved. Jesus offered him love, forgiveness, acceptance. In fact, Jesus commissioned him to leadership. I.e., in Jesus, grace came to Peter. It humbled him. It shook him to the core. He embraced it and it changed him forever. Don't you see? Grace informs us that the first subject on God's agenda to discuss with each of us was and is not judgment, but love. The Apostle John explains it this way, for God so loved the world, he sent his son, right? And then he says this, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's my, here's my Ray K translation of that. Grace came to Peter. It came to Paul. And in Jesus, it has come to us as well. Offering the very opposite of what we deserve. I mean, have, have, you, have you personally welcomed it? 
Have you by faith embraced it? Because you know what? That's what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's what gives us reason to sing and to celebrate. As famed English poet W.H. Auden put it, I know nothing except what everyone knows. If there when grace dances, I should dance. Grace gives us a reason to celebrate. You know, listen, here's the deal. I'm not sure what all you expected in coming here this afternoon. And, uh, and I realize that there are going to be some in the church who, who are going to hear all this and say, yeah, 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 right, I get it, I get it, I get the whole grace thing. You know, let's, let's, move, on to some, let's move on to some deeper, more profound theological Christmas truths. And I got to just say that if that's what you're thinking, then, I, you know, I wonder if you really do get it. Because for me, there is nothing more, more deeply profound than the grace of God. When I honestly reflect on my own life and my own brokenness and my own rebellion and failures and sin and the fact that God gives me the opposite of what I deserve, man, that is humbling. And it is transforming. And whenever I begin to think about it, I get, I get overwhelmed. It is shocking to my soul. Has it shocked you? Does it shock you? And understand, concerning the salvation of your souls, in Jesus, grace has appeared. It has come. It's come into the world. It has come to Peter. It has come to Paul. It came to John Newton. It's come to me. It has come to you, all of you, each of you. Believe it. Embrace it. And allow the true joy of it to flood your heart and your mind this Christmas. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, in the midst of the uh, holiday uh, chaos, in this moment, we come to acknowledge and welcome and receive your grace. For in Jesus, we are offered the very opposite of what we deserve. Instead of judgment, forgiveness. Instead of rejection, acceptance. Instead of death, life. Where the claims of religion crush us with guilt and insecurity, the good news of Jesus sets us free and gives us true joy. And so we receive it tonight. We receive him the Savior of the world. And we give you thanks for what he has done for us. We offer our time to you tonight in his name. Amen. I want to thank you for uh, joining us this evening. And um, in a moment, we'll extinguish our candles. And just to let you know, we have some receptacles in the back. You can just drop them uh, as you go by. But I'm really glad you were here. And hopefully uh, this has given you a moment to not just, not just have Christmas be this emotional thing, which is all good. I mean, the sentimentality, all that's all good. But there's some, there's some reality behind it about what Jesus has done for us. And uh, hopefully over the next 24 hours, uh, that reality will stay close, not just to your heart, but to your mind as well. So thanks for coming, and I hope you have a great Christmas. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're dismissed.
And now, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we go to our homes and families, spend time with friends. I pray that the reality of your grace that has been offered to us in Jesus would, um, would stay close to our hearts and to our minds this season. And may uh, we rejoice because of what has been done for us in him. And we give you thanks for that. And now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. Merry Christmas.